it's funny how you get used to these things and then you're like, who even am I without my <laughs> lashes on? I know. <laughs> <laughs> It's so funny because I remember when you were wearing them and you told me all about them and I started wearing them and you would say it's kind of nice because you can get away with not doing anything else. Mm -hmm. It's so true. Yeah, the gig I played this weekend, like I didn't spend a whole lot of time doing makeup except I had the lashes and so it looks like I've done a lot. Did you have to wear masks? We were mask optional. Okay. Well, especially if you're wearing a mask, you're like, why even bother? Yes. Doing the lower half of my face. <laughs> Yes, I've gotten much better with eyebrows. That's something I've learned as well in the last year. Lashes and brows. Yep. So you got to worry about. Of course, you don't have to worry about any of that. That's true. I'm just like super high maintenance <laughs> and have certain expectations of the way that I present myself and that I impose on myself. I'm well aware. You know what? We have freedom of choice to dress ourselves up however we want to. That is 100% our choice. Uh -huh. This thing with high maintenance makes me laugh because... From the time I was a teenager and that started to be a thing where you'd hear people culturally say, oh, so-and-so is so high maintenance or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'd be like, I am not high maintenance. I'm like so low maintenance. I'm so easygoing. I'm one of the guys, you know. <laughs> but the more I know myself, I would identify as high maintenance. I'm like owning yeah. it. And that's fine. <laughs> there should be like no judgment why did low maintenance become this totally. paragon of like yeah. virtue? We just want it the way we want it, when we want it. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. So there's this famous story about Alicia Keys and she was on The Voice and Adam Levine like came into her dressing room. She had gone on this whole no makeup, just very bare faced look. And he came in and she was putting on makeup and he was like, but I thought you weren't wearing makeup these days. And she was like, I do whatever the f I want. <laughs> I love that story so much. <laughs> yeah, we wear makeup, we don't wear makeup. That is our choice, you know? Yes. Welcome to the Viola Centric Podcast. We are two curious violists creating a safe place to have authentic and challenging conversations in the professional music world. I'm Liz. And I'm Steph. Let's jump in the deep end. It's been a very feminist few days for me. Oh, yeah. You said you were talking about the patriarchy. Yes. There was a lot of exploration of the patriarchy in the last few days of my life. Also, I just feel like I'm being hit over the head because I've told you about this, but I don't think I've said it on the podcast that I started watching the morning show on Apple. Oh, yeah. I haven't started it yet. There's so many moments in there that I'm like, yes, 100%. Yes. And then it's all you can see. Even like microaggressions, I think. We don't see them. We don't necessarily acknowledge them, but they happen. Just like someone in a position of authority admonishes you, but doesn't do the same for the guy next to you who's doing the exact same thing or mm. these little exercises of power over you that are just so ingrained in our culture. Yeah. And it could be really, I don't want to say distracting, but if you were to point out all of the times that someone did something kind of microaggressive you wouldn't have time to like have any other thoughts in your brain. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> it's really a fascinating thing to explore. And I spent Sunday with my very dear family friend. I've learned so much from her. And she's been in business since the 80s. She started working in 1985. Mm. She's got this sort of beautiful blend of toughness and empathy, where she doesn't get overly emotional when things are going on in business. But she does maintain real emotional intelligence with her employees, with her clients. She's brilliant in terms of being a woman in business. I can't say enough about her. But it's really interesting because she was telling me this story that recently another woman cried in a meeting. Something happened where this new guy came in who's sort of the head of everything. And he was just aggressively just going after her, asking all these questions about why this, why that, whatever. And she cried. Mm -hmm. And... And my family friend was like, okay, first of all, this is horrible that this is happening. But if you're in a room full of men like that, don't cry. If you need to cry, you have to walk out of the room, go to the bathroom, do whatever you need to do. That hits at the heart of it. Mm -hmm. That she was being treated in such a way that would elicit emotional response. And it was exactly what they wanted to have happen because then they can use that against her. Right. It's, it's awful. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much to pick apart there. I mean, I don't, I don't know where to start. Where do you even start? It's true. Yeah, we went into a whole conversation about emotional intelligence, too, and just how 
undervalued it is, but how incredibly important and integral it is to evolving as human beings. Yep. And the patriarchy has no interest in that. Mm. <laughs> it takes a certain amount of willingness to shift the mindset there. And I'd like to think it's happening. But there was some podcast that I just listened to that talked about emotional intelligence. I'm trying Ooh. to find it real quick. Yes, please do. It's this podcast I listened to called No Stupid Questions. Hmm. And the two hosts are Stephen Dubner, who's famous for Freakonomics, and Angela Duckworth, who I've mentioned several times. She wrote Grit. Mm -hmm. But anyway, they have questions that listeners submit, and they really go into a very statistical, behavioral science kind of answer to these questions. And so one of the questions is, is emotional intelligence really so important? And it was episode 85. But I thought it was a really great episode. And they always do a good job of looking at it from a lot of different angles. Yeah. Emotions live in our body and they are actual physical responses to something. Mm -hmm. And so to me, to not understand where they're coming from, <laughs> how to understand them, it just feels like we're missing a piece of ourselves and we're missing a way to understand other people. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I'm very excited to Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart, that new book that came out, yep. which is essentially like an encyclopedia. And she categorizes these big, I guess, life experiences that can cause these certain emotions. But I think it's in her book at the very beginning, or I heard her talk about the fact that the average person only has maybe like five words to describe their emotions, mm. which is really wild to think about. And I had the hardest time with it, especially starting therapy. My therapist would ask me how something made me feel. And a lot of times I would say, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> I just felt mm -hmm. ellipsis. <laughs> I just felt. Yes. <laughs> it's such a fascinating thing. And just today I pulled up an episode of Glennon Doyle's podcast and it's with an author named Susan Kane. Do you know this author? Yeah. You might love it. She has books called Quiet, and then there's something about introverts. And Oh, oh, yes. <laughs> okay. I didn't know her by name. I've heard of those books. Sounds like she writes about introvert empowerment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but she's recently written a book about, I think it's called Bittersweet, but it's essentially an exploration of sadness you can't have joy without sadness. You can't have beauty without ugliness. To truly embrace and understand this dichotomy is very validating to realize that when we're in a tough spot or if we're unhappy or if we're feeling the grief of the world and all of the ugliness that's going on right now, that's okay and it's part of life. Yep. And just letting ourselves feel both at the same time. She told this story. I typed out the details because I really thought it was special to share. And you might know this story because I guess it was a pretty popular thing. And I have this vague recollection of hearing about it. But it was during the war in Sarajevo in 1992, the principal cellist of the symphony there. There was a bombing where his apartment was and 22 people died. And so for every day, for 22 days, he would sit in the rubble and play Albanoni G minor mm -hmm. for those people. And he chose this heartbreaking music because it reflected that feeling that everybody had. It wasn't like, I'm going to sit outside and cheer you up. It was just, I'm going to access the way we feel through this medium mm -hmm. and do this beautiful thing. And that's the truth, right? There's this tragedy, but there's this beauty at the same time. And mm -hmm. yeah, I think that that's one of our greatest contributions as musicians mm -hmm. is to be able to articulate in some way both sides of the coin because people do not have the tools to say it themselves just as you were talking about how people don't have the words to describe their own feelings and that's what we saw throughout the pandemic was that the arts and music were the way that people expressed what they were going through so it does kind of make you reflect on what your purpose is as a musician. If you're ever feeling lost mm -hmm. or like what you're contributing isn't enough, just know that you have this very solemn, very special role in people's lives is to help them articulate those feelings. Yes. And I think about this too, even just for us as kids, I know for sure that when I found music, 
I feel things so intensely and so deeply. And I'll be honest, I think my family would back me up on this. I didn't grow up with anyone understanding just how intense it was. That's what music did for me as a kid. Mm -hmm. I had an outlet then, like I had somewhere to put it. And that speaks to other people. Yeah, same. You know, you're triggering this memory. And when I was younger, I was a very sensitive child and I would cry at the drop of a hat. You looked at me sideways and I would cry. And of course, you get teased for that Yep. as a child. You get called a crybaby. You know, people don't understand that. And I think that was a huge, huge reason why I became so bottled up and didn't learn how to express my feelings until I went to therapy. Because I had been like, oh, well, emotions like this aren't something that you display. You need to tamp that down, friend. You need to <laughs> bottle that up because people are going to make fun of you for being sensitive like that. Yeah. And no one knew how to talk to me about it when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And so I had to like learn how to feel again. Isn't that crazy? Well, I think societally, it's not acceptable for people to wear their hearts on their sleeves. Honestly, when I think about my dad, especially, I don't know how many times I grew up hearing the phrase, stop being so sensitive, mm -hmm. or don't be so sensitive, mm -hmm. or you're being so sensitive, like those things over and over again. I think there was a little frustration, of course. But I think that in some ways it was a protectiveness too, because it's like, if you can't toughen up, how are you going to live out here in this world? <laughs> You're going to get eaten alive, yep. you know? <laughs> and I can understand where that came from. We started this talking about my friend literally telling her colleague, don't ever cry again in a meeting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm so grateful also for therapy. I'm with you on that because I would say that I suppress in different ways. I don't know that anyone would describe me ever as having bottled things up, but I certainly found ways to escape and still do. I know that about myself. And just knowing that like, it's okay for me to be a little more extreme yeah. than other people. It's fine. That's who I am. Yep. It's just who I am. Yep. Love it or hate it. It doesn't matter to me anymore. <laughs> Good for you. I love it. I'm here for it. Well, thanks, girl. It's good to sit down and talk. We haven't done this in a hot second. I know. It's really good. It's fun. It's crazy to think that our season is winding down, though. I know. This is our last guest of the season. Uh, but it's a good one. It's a really good one. We had such a great time talking with Carol yesterday. Yeah. Oh, she's great. So great. She's like, it seems like a perfect mixture to be a teacher mm -hmm. of personality traits because she is so empathetic and so in touch with her feelings and feeling her feelings and how that impacts her physical body. But also, here's how to nurture my students and make sure that they are growing to their full potential. Yes, and an environment of collaboration, mm -hmm. an environment of support among her students we talked a little bit about the one and only Karen Tuttle, who was such an influence in the viola world that you see that influence in the major universities and orchestras all around the country, the world, really. And also just speaking of emotional intelligence and feminism, mm -hmm. <laughs> this woman like pioneering the way for these beautiful souls to come forward and do this work. And Carol is really a great example of that. But I also love that Carol pointed out that there's this community of Karen Tuttle disciples out there, but that all of them are wildly different. She mentions that the best work you can do to be a great musician after you get the technique down is to just work on yourself, know yourself, mm -hmm. know yourself inside and out. That's how you get there. She's been all over the world teaching and playing. And so has seen a lot of differences in our field based on what continent you're on. Mm -hmm. So that was super interesting to hear too. I think that you're going to take a lot from this conversation, but let us know what you think. Enjoy this conversation with Carol Rodland. As you know by now, we are thrilled to be sponsored by The Artgrest. They're a small business based in Rochester, New York, and one that we are proud to support. 
Aaron and Tigran literally started the company in their home workshop and continue to manufacture each arc rest by hand and mail them out personally to every customer. And because they're a small business, they're now able to offer a new option just for you. Customization. Now you can get your new ArcRest base with a favorite color, a pattern, or even a photo to make it unique to you. Yes, imagine a family or pet photo, your favorite sports team's colors, or your orchestra's logo on your ArcRest. Head over to our Instagram for a photo of our own customized bases, and you can also visit thearcrest.com to see some more examples. Really, the possibilities are endless. And you can feel confident knowing that your purchase is supporting the actual people who design and will be making your new shoulder pad with their own hands. Find their products at thearcrest.com. That's T-H-E-A-R-C-R-E-S-T.com. We are all busy, especially those of us who teach music. We give everything to ensure our students' abilities and love of music are always growing and developing. We want to make sure each one has the right setup and instrument, but we barely have enough time to practice for ourselves sometimes. That's where Potter Violins can come in. Their sales team and technicians are also players and experts on all string things. You can send your students to try instruments, get properly sized, have their current instruments adjusted, or to pick out a new bow or other string accessory. You can have total confidence that they'll be taken care of. Potters will even ship what your students need anywhere in the United States. So take one thing off your plate and send your students over to Potter Violins, no matter what they need. And Potter Violins loves teachers so much, they want to offer you a 10% teacher's discount because you deserve it. Visit their flagship location in Tacoma Park, Maryland, their rental location in Gaithersburg, Maryland, or shop online from anywhere at potterviolins.com. Our guest today, violist Carol Rodland, enjoys a distinguished international career as a concert and recording artist whose playing has been described as larger than life sweetly in tune and infinitely variegated, which I just love. I have never heard that word used for anything other than plants. <laughs> it's fantastic. Ms. Rodland is also a much sought after teacher. She's currently professor of viola and chamber music at the Juilliard School, where she herself studied with the incomparable Karen Tuttle. Ms. Rodland has also taken her music into the community, founding If Music Be the Food, an all-volunteer concert series that brings awareness to the problem of hunger in the local community. And there are so many accolades that I could not fit in here, but just know that Carol is kind of a big deal in the Violaverse and that we are thrilled to welcome you here today. <laughs> so thank you so much for making time for us. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I love that term Violaverse. I've never heard that before. I love that. TM. I'm going to leave. Yep. <laughs> May I borrow it? I'll give you credit. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Stephanie just shared with me earlier that she has also been to a Karen Tuttle workshop. Mm -hmm. I had the great fortune of attending the virtual workshop in 2020 when you all went online. I was so grateful for that experience because I had never been to one. And once it was offered virtually and I wasn't freelancing, so I wasn't gigging, I was able to attend and it was so impactful. So I bought the book that you had just come out with. For those who don't know, it's called The Karen Tuttle Legacy, and it's essentially a resource and guide for violists that was written in collaboration with several of you, her protégés. And you wrote the intro about Karen, and something you described was that if something rang true for her, it was an enthusiastic yes. But if she had a gut feeling that it was unnatural or unhealthy or painful, it was wrong and it was a no. So I guess that's a really good place to start is to just talk about how intuition led her path and how that experience translates to your own teaching and the way you play. Because I know you found her at a time where something was wrong for you and you needed that guidance. Yeah, I. it was definitely divine intervention, in my opinion, because I was in Aspen. It was my freshman year at Juilliard, and I was on one of the fellowships, and I, of course, had to play a lot of orchestra. And I had had various injuries. I was a violinist before I switched to viola. I was a switch hitter for a while, and I'm not the largest person. I have kind of small hands, and I played pretty well as a teenager. I had quite a lot of success. Nobody ever really told me did I might have to actually play the instrument differently for reasons of health. They're like, oh, it sounds great. 
you know, you're a passionate, like teenage kid and you just give everything you have. And, you know, I was just basically playing it like I played the violin. And over time, as I went to college, as often happens, you know, you start playing even more hours when you go to music school and it was just so painful to play. And I was in kind of a crisis. And I went to Aspen that summer and I sort of said, okay, either something has to give, I have to change, or I'm just, I love writing. I'm just going to like go to Swarthmore or Yale and be an English major. Mm. And I was really close to doing it, but I took a year off of school. And I actually, that summer in Aspen, within a week, Jeff and Lynn Irvine were there and I met them. And they said, you know, Karen Tuttle's coming to Juilliard. You have to meet her. So I wrote her a letter. She wrote back to me. I still have it. The most beautiful letter. She'd never met me, but I guess she knew who I was. You know, here I am, 18. Mm -hmm. And she wrote me this beautiful letter. And she said, I am sorry you are having so much. She used the word travail, which I never forgot. It was just so in her beautiful spidery handwriting. And she just said, let's meet when we get to New York at the beginning of September and play for me and we'll figure this out. And I thought, I've never met this one, but I just believed her. You know? Yeah. And then that same week in Aspen, I went to this wonderful singing teacher who ran meditation classes, Irene Gebrud, went to her class, and I happened to be wearing a St. Olaf College sweatshirt where my sister teaches now. And Irene saw me out of this room of a couple hundred people, and she's like, come talk to me. <laughs> you know? This was the same week that I wrote to the Karen Tuttle letter and got the answer. And Irene said, are you okay? And you know, I went to St. Olaf. That's why I brought you in here. And I, I said, well, actually, I'm trying to decide if I'm going to quit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she said, before you do, my friend's coming to visit me this week. She's a Feldenkrais practitioner and a healer, and she's coming to visit and do some classes. And that's when I met Forestine Paulet. So basically, when I got to New York in September, I started my lessons and sessions with Forestine. I started my lessons with Karen Tuttle, and it took a good year or so, but I completely had to change everything that I did. And it saved my life. Those two women saved my life. I met them in the same week. So it was meant to be. That's amazing. And what was so amazing with Karen was that everything that I would be learning in my Feldenkrais sessions with Forestine, I'd come into a lesson and Karen would say the same thing. She just <laughs> didn't know what anything was called. And it was the most amazing correlation. Yes. Must be so intuitive. She was brilliant. When I first played for her, she just, you know, because I was doing this with all the intensity and she just put her hand on my head, went like that, went like that. And she said, if you fix those things, sweetheart, you'll be fine. That's what she said. <laughs> and I looked at her and nobody had ever said anything like that to me before. And I, I believed her because you could not because she had this really loving but totally intense presence. And I thought, okay, I'll do what you say. <laughs> I trusted her right away. And she just really supported me through this really difficult time and loved me through it, believed in me through it, even talked to my parents. It was amazing. Wow. Hard work. Lots of very difficult hard work, but so worth it. When I finished my degree with her, she said, now your next step, you have to go study with Kimi. She called her Kimi. And I had wanted to study in Europe anyway, and then Kim moved to Freiburg, so it was like perfect, and I got a Fulbright grant. And then I went to study with Kim Kashkashian for two years, which was also just life-saving and amazing and wonderful. But then I had the unique opportunity after my graduate work with Kim to go back to New York. And I did a, an American master's at Juilliard, but I was able to be Karen Tuttle's assistant after being away from her for a few years and studying with Kim. And I'm sure I was just a big pain in the neck. I know I was. <laughs> I wish I could apologize to her now. It was just amazing to be able to really be under her mentorship for teaching. And she gave me free reign to try everything out. And then if something wasn't the way she thought it should be, or if I had a question, I could always go ask her. So I really got kind of teacher training there from her. And then I had the opportunity, my first job was in Berlin at the Hans Eisler Hochschule. Kim asked me to come with her for the first year when she moved there. So I got to learn to be her assistant mm. for a year before. So I got to just have perspective from both after a break from both. Yeah. And then that helped me to develop my own way of doing things. But I'm just eternally and forever grateful to both of them. It's amazing to think about. I know in the foreword you write about Karen that you describe her as a mentor and a second mom yep. and a great friend. Yep. And to have that kind of relationship with a teacher and to have it in so many phases of your growth as a musician and as a teacher is a big deal. And of course, with Kim, too. It must have been incredible to be learning from the two of them in those ways where there's overlap because Kim studied with Karen as well, 
but they also were carving out their own path. The like six degrees of separation of Karen Tuttle amazed me. It's just like (laughs) we are all one. (laughs) We are. Yeah. No. And just because of the way she lived her life and how teaching and sharing and mentoring, it was in her DNA. And she just really, as we said, believed in, in truth and love. And that's how she lived. And it's had such a huge ripple effect. Yes. I'm so grateful for my, we call each other the Tuttle Sibs, the siblings. <laughs> and we're all so different because her aim was to help you become fully who you are. And so each of us is completely different. And that's why I was so happy with this book to see, it really came out of the workshop work that we do, that each of us describes it and experiences it so differently, but you can still see where the truths are mm-hmm. and where the commonalities are. Mm. Yes. It's truly such a beautiful resource, and you can get that hint of each of you in it, but understanding these concepts in a way that I imagine only she could deliver. And of course, this podcast is to get to know you, Carol. (laughs) But I did want to ask you if you have other stories that you particularly love to share about Karen. We actually have an audience that goes beyond violists. And so just to talk about her, maybe someone will look her up and be like, I want to know about this one. (laughs) Pretty phenomenal. Well, I mean, there are so many layers to discuss with it. She was really a woman before her time. Yes. Mm. And was such an inspiration for young women in how to live an authentic, we would call it now an authentic life. But much of her world was not ready for her. Yeah. And she didn't talk about that, but I'm sure she must have suffered, uh. really suffered. And anyway, just an inspiration to be part of that lineage. Basically, I learned the two rules of viola playing. It has to sound good and it has to feel good. And if either of those elements is missing, that's the essence of the methodology. She hated methodology. So had to feel good, had to sound good. And then her whole system of coordination, and again, she would hate a system or a method, which is kind of the irony of the fact that in order to put this down, we had to (laughs) create a system, create a system or a method. (laughs) But I always do a disclaimer by saying, please know that she hated (laughs) systems and methods and not system methods. (laughs) But it becomes a way of being open to a very deep kind of learning and examination. Yeah, a very individualized type of learning. Exactly. It's like, I'm going to put all this out here for you. And you absorb what it is that you need. And you're you're Mm -hmm. going to take from this. She's like a viola guru, because you know, it's based on that old Greek aphorism, know thyself. And she really encouraged us to get to know ourselves. And that in order to be able to be the most communicative artist, at the highest level, you had to work on yourself. Oh, that's so deep. Yes, it is. So we as players, and I'm sure that some of your students come to you like this. We want someone to tell us what to do. Quick fix. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> tell me what fingering is going to solve my problem. Tell me what to do with my arm. And all that is useful. And there is a time for all of that. But the most important key is that individual knowledge of yourself. And that's like the magic little dust. Well, that's the the never ending quest. It becomes a, a lifelong path. So I always feel like the viola happens to be the vehicle we chose, but the learning is life learning. Absolutely. All the yes. So do you have <laughs> students that you have to kind of bring them into this consciousness of your way of teaching? I think at this point, since I've been doing it for 25 years, people who want to do it are the ones who tend to come to me. Yeah, they know what they're in for. Well, and if they don't, they figure it out fast. But most of them now they've done their homework, and they know what they want. And I think there's a time in everybody's life for a different kind of guide. And I believe when you're open, you find your people. I mean, my own story is case in point. But yeah, I find that with these wonderful students that I have, they're so open, and they want to come and they learn and they come at different phases. Some people come to me because they are injured and they need rehab help. Some people come because they heard that sound. They just want that sound. You know, all different reasons that they come. Yeah. So having done it for 25 years, what sort of evolution have you noticed in the way music students come into school, their expectations, how they learn? It must be really interesting to think about those early days and now and where we're headed. I'm really curious to hear what that perspective would be like. 
Well, I've had the really great fortune of teaching in five major schools since I started teaching. Amazing. It's just the way my path has been. I started my first full-time professorship was at the Hans Eisler in Berlin. And I started in the mid to late 90s there, which was only a few years after the wall came down. I don't want to get into a whole political discussion of what's going on in our world now, but it's resonating so much with me because of having lived at that time in that place in the former East. Oh, yeah. But anyway, so I had a very international class from the get-go, which was such a huge way, amazing way to learn and get going. I just am forever grateful. And then I got that job quite young. You know how when you're here in an American university as a younger person, you're hired as assistant professor. And then in your school, as you progress and you build your career, then you're promoted to associate, then to full. But in the German system, when you're hired, say zwei, Professor C2 was the equivalent, basically, of assistant professor. But if you wanted to get to the next level, earn more money and all of that, you actually had to get a, an appointment somewhere else. So after the five-year mark, I loved it there, but it just felt like I should look on the other side of the pond, too for the next step. And even though it was very difficult because my playing life was really starting to grow in a very interesting way in Germany. And I don't have any regrets ever, but sometimes I still, I think about that. I was appointed to a position at Arizona State University, which is a really wonderful school. It was something I'd never experienced before. It just seemed like it was where I needed to go and what I needed to do. It was a huge change because I'd only ever lived in basically in New York or in Europe at that time. And so I moved to Arizona. But then as I made my announcement to my class and my colleagues that I was leaving Berlin, the kids were like, well, can't we come too? And I went, what? And six of them wanted to come to Arizona with me. Wow. You know, if there had been reality TV in 2001, they should have made a movie of us. Oh my gosh. These international (laughs) viola students coming to Arizona. It was crazy. And I Spent nine rather mind-blowing months at ASU. But then while I was there, timing being everything, I got the position at New England Conservatory. And I never thought they'd hire me, and they did. My two cats and I moved from Berlin to Phoenix to Boston in a nine-month period. Did you take your viola ducklings (laughs) with you? (laughs) Well, some of them came. And actually, another one who hadn't been able to come from Berlin the first time came to Boston. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that really says something in itself. Yeah, they moved across (laughs) the world for you. They did. I was so shocked. And we had this epic adventure. (laughs) It was amazing. And then obviously English is my first language, but I had started my teaching career and developed my teaching vocabulary in German. Oh, yeah. When I moved to Arizona and I had that class of students I had always taught in German, we finally ended up in studio class because I would get so confused. We taught the Americans a bunch of German terms. (laughs) And it took a few years to get out of it. I'm cured now. I don't keep going back and forth. But every once in a while, especially when I'm tired, there are just certain words in German that I think are more descriptive to talk about music with. Oh, sure. And every once in a while, it still happens. But lots of good stories there. But then I went to NEC, which was amazing. And I loved it. And then partway through... Eastman came calling. And at first I was like, but I love Boston. But then Eastman came calling with basically the offer you couldn't refuse. And it became clear that it was the right thing for this next part of my life. And then I spent nine really wonderful years at Eastman in Rochester. And there I was full professor with tenure. It feels like a really beautiful place from which to do whatever else it is that you want to do in life. I love teaching, but I always say I took a teaching job to fund my chamber music habit. Ah, (laughs) yes. I mean, that's very pithy and does not, I mean, I am devoted to my teaching because it's just so essential to my life and I'm so inspired by it. And then I said there, well, the only place I'd ever go is to my alma mater and they're never going to ask me and I can never afford to go to New York. And then lo and behold, it did happen. And I'm so thrilled to have this chapter. I can't believe this is my fifth year in New York already. Wow. Wow. Back at home. And I'm so honored to be able to continue Karen's work here as best I can through my lens. Mm -hmm. But it's been really fascinating to me having really lived full on in these very different environments. Each time I've moved, students have gone with me from my class. But the cultures of each of the schools, these are all terrific schools, but they're so different. Yeah, Their governance is different. Their student bodies are different. There's something about the feel of geography and 
It is just different. But what is so amazing to me is that everywhere you go, I say music is kind of like a weed. No matter how difficult the environment, it grows and people need it. And musical communities in all of these places are so beautiful and unique. Mm. And it works and manifests and it's like the oxygen that you need everywhere. I love that. We all get worked up in situations because we're musicians, so we're passionate people, right? <laughs> but it just gives you a perspective to have been able to live in different kinds of places and really integrate with people in that way. Yeah. It helps to keep me on a more even keel, I think, having seen that and not being locked into one place and thinking, this is the only way it can be. Mm -hmm. And I think as violists, too, being that inner voice that we see from the inside out, how things can move and morph and be different. I'm curious about the difference teaching in Europe and teaching here in the States. We could talk for hours about all of that, <laughs> but... One thing I do want to say right away, though, is the way things have changed since I was living in Europe mm. is that with the explosion of the internet, the quick availability where people can listen to people from all over the world and interact with them in real time, yeah, that has changed so much. And if you look at the makeup of a lot of the major orchestras in Europe and even in the US, but more so in Europe, it's completely international now. Mm. Mm. The other thing, and they are quite connected, it's recruitment season at American schools right now. And finances play such a huge role in education in this country. Whereas in Germany, if you audition and you get into one of these conservatories, you don't pay tuition. They pay a couple hundred euros for a registration fee. And when that was created, people went nuts because they had to pay, what, 50 euros, 100 euros? <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> And I'm like, people, you don't understand. You have no idea, friends. You have no idea. <laughs> and granted, when you're working there, you pay more. I don't even want to get into it. You pay more taxes, but you do get services. And there's this thing called infrastructure. And <laughs> What? Anyway, yes. So basically, anyone who was of the level, who passed the audition, who wanted to come, tuition wasn't a barrier. And that's huge. Mm. And I think... Especially now, the study of classical music is joyful enterprise, warts and all. We could even start a whole other conversation about what has to happen in classical music. <laughs> you know, there's so much, it's never ending. But I've always felt that you really shouldn't put yourself into a lot of debt if you want to be able to come out from school with the ability to really take risks and be creative because it's not a lucrative mm -hmm. business. And as string players, we have the added difficulty that our voice colleagues or our wind and brass colleagues, we have the expense of an instrument as string players. Yes. <laughs> it's been a huge part of my own journey. It finally got solved, but I didn't pay off my viola till I was almost, mm -hmm. I was in my 40s. <laughs> yeah. So I just understand, especially now with pandemic, where people's families have taken enormous hits to their livelihoods. But then on top of it, our field, mm -hmm. we don't know yet what's happening completely with it. For a student to come out of music school saddled with huge debt, it's not really tenable anymore. Yeah. And it's something that concerns me greatly. Mm. And anyway, that's one of the biggest differences. This is such a great thing to think about. And on a deeper level, I'm thinking about what it means, just to your point, that a student who goes to school in Germany and is not burdened by anything when they graduate, what sort of freedom and flexibility do they feel in their ability to take risks and take those chances, mm -hmm. that it's not just the practical aspect of debt, it's that underlying sense of empowerment or freedom that we don't have. It's freedom, because yeah. in six months, you don't have to start paying this back the same way. Yeah. There are wonderful, my school can help people wonderfully. There are places people can go right in the US where they get beautiful support too. And people are in the administrations of our schools are working really hard yeah. to try to make that happen. But I sort of feel like it's time for the billionaires to cough it up. I'm so glad you brought it up <laughs> because this isn't something we've touched on at all. But just to put the open-ended question out there of how can it be different and just start planting those seeds because you're right. There are many reasons why it doesn't need to be as expensive for people to get a college education. And that's not just related to music, but particularly with something like music, where it's a creative endeavor. But on the other hand, as I said, I've loved all of my schools, but 
There is that old adage, in some senses, you do get what you pay for. One of the things I love about Juilliard, about Eastman NEC, is the infrastructure in the schools with these wonderful administrative people. There's so many wonderful student services and career services and things that you don't get in a German Hochschule for support. There's career support, there's actual psychological support, there's physical therapy support, there's support of the person, there's living community, which is not the same. You don't have a dormitory situation where hmm. people live together and grow together. So I was always grateful that I had both experiences myself. And there are things that you can't get here that you can get there, but there are really things about the growth of the person. That's one of the great things that higher education does in this country. And that's why people from all over the world come here to study. Mm -hmm. So it's both and nothing comes without a cost. Mm -hmm. Costs money to do that. So I don't pretend to have the answers, but I just always worry about students and debt. Yeah, that's such a great point. And also getting into the systems that are in place in American schools and what a music performance degree means, depending on where you go to school and all of those mm -hmm. other things. These are really interesting things to consider. I have colleagues who teach in very, very small music programs within private universities in the middle of a state somewhere. And they're asking questions like, what does it mean for a student to get a music performance degree from this place? Well, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think I know from my own experience, and this is the constant struggle with management versus the artists that goes on in our orchestras and things. It's that you can't put a price tag on what learning is or liberal arts education in general. It's not about you'll train for this and then you'll get this big paying job. No, it's about learning how to think. Hmm. It's about learning how to be. And you can't quantify that same way, but it is invaluable and you have to educate the person and it can't just be about vocational school. Mm. That's important too. You need to educate thinking, feeling people, which is why I think a degree in music, the way that you know this from playing an instrument, the way you have to look and learn and be in yourself and wrestle with yourself to do anything at the highest level, you have to be willing to go to the mat mm. with yourself and what you get, of course, when you think you're never going to get out of it, but then once you do, you're just a much more effective member of society. And so I think an undergraduate degree in music, I'm more and more convinced it just helps to grow more thinking, feeling, intuitive people who are collaborators. I went to Juilliard pre-college before I went to college. And I have so many of those friends. Yes, some of them are very prominent musicians and some of them are great doctors, great lawyers, great professors of whatever. But the study at the highest level of learning how to play an instrument and learning like chamber music. Don't get me started on the I love chamber music and what it teaches us and playing an orchestra, what it teaches us, mind, body and spirit. Mm -hmm. Sports are great, too. And teamwork with that. Yeah. But music, nothing makes you deal with your soul that way through the physicality of it. Yeah, it's a sustained effort that you have to do. It's this tenacity, this willingness to go on even when you're not having success. And I think that music is a great proving ground for that. You've learned this skill, this trait that will translate to almost anything that you do. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm more and more convinced of it as we live in this society where people are constantly yelling at each other and not listening. Yes. Musicians learn how to listen. We have to listen to each other if we're going to survive as a species. And we have to know that sometimes you have to sublimate your own needs for the needs of someone else. Like in chamber music, again, sometimes you really have to get out of the way so that something else that's more important than you in that moment can come through. Obviously, I'm preaching to the choir here, but I just think it's Music will save us all if we let it. I think it's so important for anyone who's listening to the conversation. As an educator in music, you have so many opportunities to encourage that sense of self and the understanding of how it applies into all parts of your life. As fellow musicians, we have a lot of adult learners who listen, and it's not necessarily their career path, but just how your enthusiasm for music 
translates into other places of your life. It's such a great, great point. I actually took off my refrigerator, my favorite Martha Graham quote, if I may read it to you. Yes, please. Mm -hmm. I'm sure everybody knows it, but I keep this with me. I have it hanging in my studio. I have it on my refrigerator. This is Martha Graham to Agnes DeMille. There's a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there's only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. If you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable it is, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. You do not even have to believe in yourself or your work. You have to keep open and aware directly to the urges that motivate you. Keep the channel open. No artist is pleased. There is no satisfaction whatever at any time. There is only a queer, divine dissatisfaction, a blessed unrest that keeps us marching and makes us more alive than the others. And I have always loved that quote and found it inspiring. And I, again, I, th- I really do truly believe every voice has value. And this is through my work with Karen Tuttle, with Feldenkrais, with my Pilates training, all that stuff. Get out of your own way so that the voice can flow through. That being said, if you want to play at the very highest level, it does take the hours. Right. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. And different people need different amounts. And different people have certain kinds of ways of managing that. Time management is huge because as string players, we have to play in tune. It's not negotiable. I always say the three things that have to be there before anyone will really pay attention and take you seriously. You have to play in tune. You have to have great rhythm. And you have to have a beautiful sound that is compelling. And those three things are the athletic side of our endeavor. (laughs) You know, I talk about the basics a lot. My students roll their eyes after a certain point. But it's like, (laughs) if you're not keeping the basics in shape, honey... You're not going to be it. That was Karen Tuttle. She'd say, sweetheart or honey. I was just going to say, that sounded like a Karen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm channeling her and I'd wag my finger. You do have to do it. And there's no shortcut. And I have to say, we were talking before the recording was going that I had a really terrible accident and broke my shoulder. Fortunately, after surgery, amazing doctors and lots of, I have a whole team of of people managing the Carol situation to help me get through this. Carol situation. (laughs) situation. It's like (laughs) managing me. But I, you know, I'm obviously the main manager for this. If I didn't know how to address all of my little basics as I'm building back up into my playing, I have to be really careful. I have to really go with the clock Yeah. as I build the strength back from this injury. And so I have to know exactly what I'm doing. And I'm so grateful that all of my years of all of these wonderful teachers that I've had and my own exploration, like I really love Dunas. Dunas helps me a lot. And so I make my students do a lot of Dunas. And I put my favorite viola adaptations in the Tuttle book because this guy was it's such genius. He pinpointed all the, I call them the little dusty corners of technique. I don't think all of them translate directly to viola well, but the ones that do, they get you in shape so fast. So I'm very grateful that I can address all the little corners of the basics, get things built back up as I'm working through this process myself. Yeah. And that firsthand experience is really so key to be able to help your students too. Absolutely. No, that's why I remember when I went through that first crisis where I met Karen and Forestine and rebuilt everything, I decided then and there, okay, if I'm not going to go off and be a a lawyer or a doctor or a a writer won't make me money, but the other stuff I was thinking about would have, okay, if I'm not going to do that and I'm going to go through this process, I want to be able to help other people not to have to go to the abyss the way I did. And so I really did make a commitment early on that I wanted to help other people through this because it was so horrible for me. And I wanted to be able to make sure other people didn't maybe have to suffer without help. Do you find that students who struggle with something that's causing them pain and they're playing find you? Yeah, sometimes they do. Yeah. I also find, I know this was true for me. I think I had to to use an overused term, hit rock bottom, because I was playing at a pretty high level and I wasn't going to stop. (laughs) unless I had to stop. My body made me stop and redo it. And this is the thing that's so amazing to me is that by learning how to play in this way that Karen and all my Feldenkrais work and Kim, that they helped me do, it actually just sounds even better. 
it just sounds better. When you get out of your own way and you're not like holding tension in your body rather than putting intention into your instrument, viola is so unforgiving, which is why breaking your shoulder as a violist with rather short arms is a terrible thing to do. Yes. Because I have to use a lot of power and range of motion to do what I do. Yes. Mm -hmm. You don't need that as much on the violin. You're still going to feel better if you have beautiful alignment and posture and you're comfortable, but you don't have to use the power portion of leverage that you do on viola. And so viola tells us whether we're working well with our bodies or not right away. Absolutely. I find that my larger students, my six foot two tall guys, they can get away with more Yeah. in terms of what I call inefficient use of the body parts. <laughs> but when they learn also how to channel it, well, everybody feels better. They also sound better. Teaching and playing viola is a lifelong quest. Everything's different because all violas are different lengths. All violists have different chest cavities, support for the collarbone for the instrument, different arm lengths, different hand lengths, different finger lengths. You have to find your own way, which is why Karen hated methodology, just that term, methodology and systemic stuff. But that's also what makes teaching viola fun because nobody's lesson is the same. Yes. I actually have, you can't see it, but there's that picture up above my bookshelf is when I left NEC to go to Eastman, my students took this beautiful picture in front of Williams Hall there. And I think Tiffany might even be in that picture. I'll have to look. But anyway, what they did was they decided each of them was going to sign the picture with a Rodlandism. Oh, that's awesome. And then as they did it, they were all so shocked at they didn't have the same thing. And that's when I thought, I did my job. <laughs> so I keep that picture up there. I love remembering those wonderful students. I do try to, to really, in the moment with the person in front of me, help them through whatever it is. I have a long view for their course of study, but I also want to make sure in that moment that we're trying to get at whatever is going on in this moment that needs help. You mentioned one of the things that was important to Karen, and I would imagine it sounds like is similar for you, is the idea of creating a studio that's supportive of each other. Absolutely. That your colleagues, you lift each other up, and that cutthroat competition, there's no place for that in your studio. No, there's no time for that. But a little healthy competition to be inspired by someone. Yes. Oh, they're doing... Oh, I... And they didn't sound like that before. Ooh, look at what's happening. And there's... People at all different stages doing things. And I really do. I encourage my students to play for each other. And I know that they do. And I know how important it was for me in all of my studies to have a really yep. wonderful pack of support in my studio. Yeah, I imagine they learn so much from each other, too. So absolutely, you're creating the environment for them to then share their exchange of ideas, their learning experiences, everything else. I think just the funnel of the way we're educated in America where we have yeah. competitions, the point is to get first. And I think even in the viola world, yeah. um, there are a lot of places where that still is sort of ingrained. And it takes conscious work to help people release that. And it's very, very difficult. Again, our field is brutal that way. Yes. And it makes you think in that moment, oh my gosh, I'm not good enough. no. That's not actually true. That's what I always say to people. If you're going to do a competition, you want to be really ready. Don't do it if you're not like 100% ready, but be prepared that what you want to do is learn what you can do better. There are all these studies with athletes. You make a list after a competition of what did I do well? What did I do really, really well? What did I do better than the last time I put myself out there? And then what could I do better? Because in the end, that's all we can take with us from that. And even if it goes well, even if we win, you still want to be looking at those two lists. I always say, use the competition. Don't let it use you. And I know it's so much easier said than done. And I certainly am really glad I don't have to do that stuff anymore. But it makes you better because it helps to have a goal. It helps to really have to prepare a large body of repertoire to a very high level. It changes your playing going through that process. But you have to make sure you prepare adequately so that psychologically, physically musically, emotionally, that you don't put yourself at risk unnecessarily. You know, Bartok said competitions are for horses, not for people. And he's totally right. When we really play and open ourselves up, we're putting our vulnerability of our personhood on the line. Yes. And if you're not psychologically prepared for that too, it could be dangerous. And so I'm quite protective about that. 
I'm very glad you said that it can be dangerous psychologically. Yes. I think that gets left out of the conversation, at least at the high school level, I think. Yeah. I don't know that it's as prevalent and it could make a big difference in how people approach training their students for those things. Yeah. You also have to have great courage to do what we do. And it takes great courage to open your heart, your emotions, to put yourself out there. And of course it hurts when they don't choose you. But again, if you're really working from that place of groundedness and inner strength, then after you've done your stressing and, you know, oh, that was awful, then you just, you look at your lists. Okay, what did I do well? I'm sure you did something well or you would not have gotten there. What could you do better for the next time? Because in the end, that's all you can do. So you have to take a little recovery time after something like that. Then you have to get back in there, get back on the horse and get back to work. Mm. That's how I see it. And then it becomes useful. And then when it goes your way, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel it's really important that people don't put themselves in competitions or on stage or in auditions unless they've done their best preparation. But then this is the flip side as classical musicians, like the whole perfectionism idea. This week is the pre-jury week at Juilliard. And so we've flipped the work in the studio over the last couple of weeks where you have to do your basics a little bit every day, but you also have to practice performing. And when you do your basics, when you do your skill sets, I always say to them, you do want to be really mindful. You want to make sure you know exactly how to do that little thing that you're trying to do. But then when you're getting ready to perform, you also have to practice that because it's a different part of the brain that you're using. And you have to practice communicating. You have to practice not being bothered by the little blemish. I was actually talking to one of my students about that ability to not trash the next three phrases because you, you missed a shift or you played something not. And that is so hard. You have to practice that because we have these hypersensitive alert ears, which we need in order to continue to grow and get better. We will never be good enough, but in the moment, we will be where we are 100% our best selves in that moment. Both things have to be practiced and it takes a different kind of mindset. I really encourage in my studio that we're open and we're talking about all of these things as they come. Performance anxiety, it can't be like this dark and dingy corner that nobody talks about because everybody experiences it. And if you objectify it, it doesn't have the same hold over you. And you have to learn how to deal with it. And that goes back to the know thyself. Like for each of us, it manifests itself differently. We have different problems when we get that adrenaline flowing. And if we work with it, then it doesn't have to be a scary thing. It can actually give us that extra edge. And it certainly doesn't mean we're always going to be successful. We're just not going to have our best day sometimes. And learning how to forgive yourself and again, go back to the list of what did I do well, what needs work. Yeah, no single performance is an endpoint. No, it's, it's the beginning in many ways. And part of the problem is we grew up listening to some highly edited recordings. Go listen to live recordings of the old people when they couldn't edit. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's so good. You're right. You know, I'm totally honest. Some of my recordings that I'm most proud of, we spliced and diced, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, and now they have the little dials. You can just, was that note a little flat? Yeah, Mm -hmm. just. Uh, That's not, uh, it's not music making. You can't compare yourself to those things. Can't do it. Yeah, nor should you. It's not something to aspire to. (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) So one of the things that you started many years ago, and I guess 2009, was the If Music Be the Food. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about why you started this, what you do, and the impact that it's had in your life and in the communities that you touch with this beautiful organization? Well, I had the most amazing parents and community that I grew up in. And my parents ran a huge music program, basically like a school within a church. And that idea I learned from when I could breathe and talk, I think I was singing before I was talking, (laughs) that everybody's voice has value and also just the power of music to bring people together and to heal and to help. And so I've always felt that mission aspect of the power of the arts for making us together better than what we are by ourselves and what we can do to make our communities better. Food insecurity is something I've been passionate about also since childhood because the wife of my mother's organ teacher from Bucknell did a lot of work with the food pantry in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. And when I would visit them when I was little, she'd have me help. I started to see 
wow, there are people my age living right near me who don't know where their next meal's coming from sometimes. So I've always been passionate about at the very basic level, we have to help each other make sure everybody has enough to eat, even in the U.S. of A. Making music and playing chamber music has also always been something I just, obviously, it's who I am, what I do. And then when I got to Rochester, the food insecurity need, there's a lot of poverty there. 2008 was when the stock market mm -hmm. crashed, of course, and that's right when I was moving. And you're seeing all of this sudden tragedy hitting people, and I wanted to do something. I also felt like well, here I am at this new school. I'm in a new town. I really want to run a chamber music series, but I just really don't want to deal with boards and raising money and all of that. Now that I say that, when I play at these various festivals and things, I actually love the board members. They're always the coolest people. <laughs> but what would happen if nobody had a financial transaction involved except what was going for the cause? What would happen if nobody got paid, if nobody's donation entitled them to anything. What happens if all of that's taken out and if people only give what they want to give when they want to give it because they want to? The rules for if music be the food when I came up with it has to be joyful giving where we all just want to create this thing together. So it's about nourishment. People need to hear the music. I don't want to have a barrier with people having to buy tickets. People can come if they can't pay anything. They come because they want to be fed with the music. But then we're also coming together to help people with physical nourishment, too. So it has spiritual and physical nourishment with no price tag and obligation attached. And then the third element of it, besides the, the chamber music and the food insecurity, was that I wanted a place where students could play with us, with the grown-ups. Oh, nice. Which is not a new idea because it's happened everywhere. There just wasn't anything in place at Eastman of that level when I got there. And I thought if you take the finances out of it, then everybody can be part of it. Basically, I see myself as a volunteer coordinator where I provide the opportunity. And then I would have basically three acts on a concert and I'd have a point person in charge of whatever they want to do with that act. So we'd have these amazing potpourri concerts with one time we had the Eastman Rochester chorus <laughs> came and sang. One of my wonderful voice colleagues would stage opera scenes with students mm. and faculty together. That's great. And you just had all different kinds of stuff. And then people started asking me, well, hey, can we do this too? So, <laughs> so then people, friends of mine started making If Music Be the Food series in the country. And then Kim and her Boston crew started Music for Food. And it's just a way that we can all come together and try to do something in our communities that needs help. And I'm not saying people should always play for free because, of course, we need to also keep our business going. But it's just something separate that we can all do in our own ways. And it's not new in the sense that musicians have always been central to donating performances to help causes, of course. So it's it's not a new idea. It's just with the little chamber music educational bent. That's wonderful. If someone wants to have an If Music Be the Food concert series in their area wants to put it together, what do they do? Well, they can go to the website and they can send me an email and I have a little document that I send people of what the parameters are. It's an honesty system. Yeah. The only money that exchanges hands is what goes directly to the food bank. So you have to find a partner. You have to find a partnering food bank. I love to have the representative from that food bank come to the concert to talk to the audiences. Okay. Nowadays, they will set up a direct donation link. So you don't even have to touch any money because people can just donate online or bring their food to the venue. And then you have to have a venue and a place where they won't pay rent because, again, there's no money here. Yeah. So they have to be on the mission too. So they understand that nobody will be paid for anything. There's no fee for anything. That's really the rule. So if you're a musician who wants to do this, you just want to make sure that people are happy. Nobody feels mm -hmm. put upon. That's a rule that I made. <laughs> it has to be joyful giving. People have to play stuff that they want to play. Our website, I will add you to that. And with social media, with the Facebook page and stuff, we can all do that. It doesn't cost anything. Right. That's great. And you can get an email list so you don't have to kill trees and waste paper sending out mailings and things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's environmentally friendly as well. I see it that way. <laughs> Yeah, that's wonderful. I'm just envisioning possibilities in my own mind. And I would imagine that there will be people listening who mm -hmm. will start to get ideas in their own head. So maybe you'll get yeah. some emails. <laughs> yeah. But it's also, I think, what issue are you passionate about? Where yes. do you want to help? Right. And what are your gifts? There's so much need in our world yeah. that you can be so overwhelmed by, I am just little old me. I can't possibly do anything. But 
we got to get in there and we got to try. And I have to say, if Music Be The Food has taught me so much and I'm so grateful, Mm -hmm. it's not nothing, actually, that we can come together and do this thing together. And over, what is this, 13 years, 14 years now, it has this ripple effect in ways you can't even see that it gets people thinking about, well, what can I do? What can we do? It's not I, it's we. What can we do? So great. To try to help. It's cumulative. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the beauties of this digital age. It can be a curse because we can never turn off. But on the other hand, how we could connect. Totally. If we use the technology to our advantage to bring people together rather than to separate each other, Mm -hmm. then then it's good. Oh, yeah. It's always a choice, isn't it? Yes. I choose to be grateful. Yes. (laughs) It's a choice. So much to be grateful for, for sure. It is a choice. Harder some days, some parts of some days than others, but it is a choice. Totally the perspective agree. is great. This has been so wonderful, Carol. Thank you so much Aww. for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Great to meet you guys. It's great to meet you. It's just been such a beautiful conversation. So many insights and mm-hmm. it's just lovely to get to know you in this way. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening today. And thanks also to our season two sponsors, Arkrest and Potter Violin. Another thanks to Alto Clef Gifts, where you can purchase viola-centric shirts and mugs and a variety of other fun items featuring our beloved Alto Clef. The viola-centric theme music was written and produced by J.P. Wogeman and is performed by Steph and myself. You can support our future episodes by supporting our sponsors through our PayPal link or Venmo and by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And please consider sharing your favorite episodes with your music-loving friends. Thanks again for listening. Let's talk soon.